Well, we thank you for our men and women across the country who have served, who are serving now. Father, we thank you and ask God that you would bless them. Father, that you would encourage them. Father, that you draw them to you in the midst of life. And Father, in the midst of life with its ups and downs and with its struggles, Father, that they might remain so solid, focused on you and your faithfulness. We pray, Father, that um, you would just encourage not just these men and women here, but Father, across the nation, Lord, that they might know that they are appreciated and loved. Uh, Father, we do look toward uh, this week and toward Thursday night and Friday night and especially Saturday. Father, we, we know that we can do all kinds of things and unless your spirit is involved, it is useless. We pray, Father, that your spirit might be working in the midst preparing our hearts, Father, so that we might be servants for you on Saturday. Oh, Father, we ask in a powerful way, Lord, that you would bring people here that have special needs, Lord, that we can meet. We pray, Father, that you give us boldness, Father, in reaching out. Oh, Father, we have the hope and the truth that sometimes men don't have. But we know that some will come and they will have a nominal understanding of the gospel. But we pray, Father, that you'll be working. And, Father, that your spirit with open hearts. Oh, Father, that we could do far more than just provide a, a hot meal and a basket to take home for Thanksgiving. Oh, but Father, that we could provide them an opportunity to hear the gospel, to be um, exposed, Father, to your truth. Oh, Father, work in a wonderful way, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. morning everyone we all been sitting for a while want to make sure everyone pays attention thank you so much for allowing me to be here this is so fun I've been hyped up all week this is uh, another passage when you first hear it it seems rather challenging and I've been purposefully telling people the first verse of the sermon I'm gonna preach is wives submit to their husband and then I get all these faces like what are you gonna do Carlos so we're going to see, okay? Uh, quick illustration, because we have a lot to cover today. Imagine if you, were, you just came out of work and you're about to go out with a friend. You go to your house and you say, well, let me, uh, let me shower and get changed really fast. So you go, to the, you go to your bathroom, you take off your dirty clothes, okay? And then you take your shower, you take care of business, you guys know what to do. Then you put on those dirty clothes again and you walk out and your friend says what I thought you were going to I thought you were going to change that's the same outfit and it was kind of sweaty when you took it off and it looks like the sweat dried up I could see the marks now this sounds very crazy but this is exactly what the context is uh, for our passage uh, today before we get to the wives submit to your husband, what the husbands have to do and what that family looks like, we need to look at Colossians 3 verses 12 through 17. Let me read those to you. 
It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and, thank, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Guys, this whole context of the whole book has been Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And previously he told you what to take off. And now he tells you what to put on. This section is all about setting your mind on Christ. Because your old life, those old clothes are dirty and they're dead. They're gone. And now you have a new life. And that new life is hidden with Christ. And you can clothe the things that you see on the board up there. A believer in Jesus now has a distinct look to them. And I like to call that phrase distinctly kingdom. Distinctly kingdom. Excuse me. They are changed. These new clothes, they play out in real life. They aren't just something you assent to with your mind. They actually play out in real life. We're a new kind of people. When you become a believer, you're a new kind of person. Paul's going to dive into where the, to where the meat is. He's going to dive into the household. You know, where, where people really know you in your household. There's a natural segue. You're changed. You have a new life. The segue is how's it going to look in your household. And Paul is not long here. He doesn't give an elaborate description. He kind of gives some short things. A.T. Robertson says this, and I quote, Real Christianity is both a doctrine and a life. Mere belief is dead without life as proof. Real spiritual life is impossible without vital contact with God and Christ and our dealings with others become the final proof of our real connection with Christ. So as we look at this text, remember, this is all about Jesus. This is how Jesus has told us to be. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us here, Lord. Thank you for your word. Lord, we pray for, for guidance, Lord. We pray for wisdom. We pray that you would help us to look at your words this morning as real applications that we could take home into our homes, Lord, into our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Colossians 3:18. We have three relationships here. We have wives, wives, husbands, we have parents, children, and then we have slave masters. But we're going to take them each verse by verse as they come, and then at the end there's a there's a grouping. So Colossians 3:18 says this: Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What's the problem with submission? There's a huge reaction when you say this word. However, I believe we all love authority. We love authority. I believe that we're all pretty submissive people. The problem is, and let me prove it to you, we often, the only person we want to submit to is ourselves. Well, you've been submitted to yourself for a long time. You know how to be submissive. Everyone does. We've been doing that for a long time. Do you guys remember when James and John 
were asking Jesus to sit at his right hand and left hand in heaven. You guys remember that story? Here is the phrase that they used before they actually asked him that question. And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. They say, teacher or Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's what they asked him. See, some of us, we got so caught up in what they asked for, you didn't even realize in the beginning they were saying, well, we're going to come with a request and we want you to say yes. We are a submissive people. We submit to ourselves. We put ourselves in that place where we say, God, you can be God as long as I get to God through you. That was complicated. We listen to ourselves all the time. The Bible is filled with this concept of submission. God knows people. He made them. Submission is an acceptive, normative behavior in the Bible. And what's the ultimate example? Let's look at this ultimate example. And I'm going to read this to us. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count your others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Here we go, guys. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate example of submission was Jesus Christ. So how can we be afraid of this word? How can we be disrespectful toward this word? Why do we cringe? We should not be. Our Lord, our Savior, saved us through being God who submitted. Now what does this word submit mean? It does not mean that Jesus was ruled over by God. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not God. He is God. But what he did is he submitted to the Father. And it did not make him lesser. One of the big heresies is that when Jesus submitted to the Father, that showed that he was not equal. But it doesn't. This word submit means to rank under. He took on a form. Look at the verbs here. The verbs here give us what that means. It says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held, emptied himself, taking form of a servant, being found in human form, humbled himself, being obedient. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. So when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, what is he saying? He's very clear. This is not a cultural imperative. This is a concept that even works within God himself. So wives are to submit to their husbands. So what I like to do is I like to look at three things. What's the makeup of that? What does that look like? Uh, what's the manner? And then what's the motive? So the makeup, wives are women. You guys get that piece? Uh, you all laughing, but you know that in a lot of places, wives are not women. Uh, we have things going on in our culture where this is not, uh, this is not accepted, but wives are women. It's very clear here. Another thing is wives are to submit to their own husbands. Do you get that? To their husbands. So it doesn't mean women are just supposed to go around submitting to any old person, any old male. They're supposed to submit to their own husband. And that your own husband or your husband, it denotes a relationship. 
an intimacy, a connection. This isn't some rampant, you just do it. It's, I love this person. That's your husband. He loves you. Some of you all smiling at me. I don't know what that means. <laughs> They're like, Carlos talking about love. It's, it's in the Bible. Submit means to place yourself under. It's actually a military term. It means to rank under. Notice this verse does not give direction to men. And the reason why I say that is because one of the first times I got into an argument with my wife, what did I say? The Bible says women submit to your... But that wasn't... Uh, <laughs> that wasn't my verse. That wasn't my verse to use. This verse is to wives. And I remember I... Uh, and I've heard, I don't know, I don't necessarily do this anymore, but you hear men use this verse more than women, and it's not to them, it's to wives, okay? And what does this mean? How does this play out? I think one of the key words is respect. Um, you have to respect your husband. You have to listen to him, pray for him, have to pray for him, support him, champion his causes. And be a helpmate. Now this submission is not absolute. When can this submission be, uh, be not? Or when, when, is it, when is it not? It's when your husband is asking you to sin. If your husband is asking you to do something that will cause you to sin, then you do not submit to that. Because of your relationship with the Lord. So, does, so another thing about submission is it doesn't mean that you do not have influence. It doesn't mean you just sit there quietly as the house is burning and you're waiting for your husband to wake up and tell everyone to get out, right? Uh, you can have influence. I remember early on in our marriage, I'm a public school teacher, but that's just my, that's just my job. Really, I'm, you know, I'm trying to make disciples wherever I'm in that school, right? So I remember I would hang out with students through coaching or after school programs. I'd hang out with colleagues. And I was, I was spending a lot of time doing this. And my wife, she kept asking me, Diana kept asking me, well, what's going on? What are you talking about? And she's noticing that everything we were talking about was just kind of regular hanging out. It was not distinctly kingdom. It was not distinctly Christian. And I remember she influenced me heavily. She said, you know, I definitely support you. you, you you're an evangelist by nature. You want to share the gospel with people? She said, but it, when you keep coming home talking about all you talked about was fantasy football, this isn't, this isn't what you're called to do. And so I remember that was a heavy influence. I think that's how you submit to your husband. You influence them in a godly way. And so now I'm, I'm that annoying person that's constantly trying to turn conversations into biblical conversations, right? And I thank God for that. So that's the manner. What's the motive? The motive is as is fitting to the Lord, as God desires. This is God's intention. Let's move on to the husbands. Wives, you're done. Okay, you can chill. I'm just kidding. All right, let's go to the husbands. Colossians 3.19. It says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What's the makeup of this? Well, the makeup is it's your wife. Love your wife, your possession, your great thing your blessing, your wife. What's the manner? This phrase, love your wife, 
is a phrase that kind of means keep on loving. Keep on loving your wife. You know, keep on loving your wife. Sometimes we know that's not the case. What do we know about marriage? When they were dating, it's so funny. One time we had a mosaic, Nathan, Nathan and Anita can tell you, we had mosaic in their house, and we were talking about how uh, I was mentioning that as relationships get more and more, you see the couples sit away from each other more and more. And I had prepared this before, and then we stopped, and somebody in the mosaic noticed and said, that's exactly what's happening. There were two dating couples. They were right next to each other holding hands. I was all the way over here. My wife was like the farthest spot. Nathan and Nita weren't sitting next to each other. Keith and Debbie weren't sitting next to each other. And we know that, we know that doesn't necessarily mean that they, and, and you know, we didn't love each other. But there is that passion and there's that love that sometimes can wane and sometimes go away. So that command there is that you would keep on loving your wife. Keep on loving your wife. And remember, this isn't simply an emotion. Love is an activity. It's self-sacrificial. Again, you look to Jesus. He was the example for submission. He's the example for love as well. How does he love the church? That's how we should love our wives. Consider how Jesus loved the church. What, is the, what did Jesus' love do? And it, it went before. It went after. It was holistic. It was life-changing. And to be real honest, this is definitely a lot more than just sexual love. I think a lot of times people use this verse for that too. You know, the Bible said I got to love you. But this is a holistic idea. That's what they say. You got to love her by leading her spiritually. You got to love her by leading her spiritually. You got to love her by working hard. By putting her before yourself. By listening. Huh? Yeah, listening. Huh? You just stop saying huh to your wife. That's a direct application. Huh? You can at least say, excuse me, dear. Right? So yeah, we have to listen. For real. Uh, my second time in marriage, marriage counseling, I learned that. You have to listen. <laughs> the love described here by God as well, God, is agape love. It's that unconditional, it's the self-sacrificial love. I have a visual here. Anyone seen this before? Okay, some, some people have. So this is what we call the energizing cycle. Now, quick side note. My wife and I, and I know a lot of other couples, they work on their marriage. This stuff doesn't come naturally. You know, following God's commands is to come naturally. You have to work on that. So this, work on this. So this is a conference we've been through twice. You know, one says watching it, another time that's helping to lead it, right? And we've been through marital counseling three times, and I'm proud to say that. You know why? Because when something was off, we didn't act like it was okay. We were humble enough, and that's funny, I'm talking about being humble, which is prideful. Anyway, we were humble enough to actually say we need some help. And it's not happening right now. We need some help. And so this is one of the things we learn, and I call it, well, Emmerich calls it, the energizing cycle. So when you love your wife, it motivates her to what? To submit, to be respectful to you, which motivates you to love your wife, to be loving. 
Someone's like, oh, that sounds so good. It is good. It is good. However, there's another cycle I didn't even want, I didn't even want to put up here. It's called the crazy cycle. How many, how many of you all know about the crazy cycle? Well, only one person raised their hand. They weren't married. You guys lying over here. Edwin was testifying on behalf of his parents. So he knows about the crazy cycle. All right. He's the only one. And then Cassie was all late over there. But anyway, the crazy cycle goes like this. His lack of love or unloving, it breeds or motivates what? Her lack of respect or dis disrespect, which then breeds or fosters a lack of love. So that's that cycle. So who's the person that jumps in and saves the day? Whose task is it? Well, I would say it's the husband's task. He's the leader. He needs to step in and stop this task. First to confess. First to apologize. And I know sometimes you're like, but I'm not wrong. That's very rarely been true in my life. <laughs> I remember I went to counseling one time and I was like, ooh, I'm about to prove my case. I got another person that's going to verify, confirm. And I promise you the whole counseling meeting and everything was about me for weeks. So much so I even had a special counseling session on the side. <laughs> he said, we need to meet with you on your own. And I was like, man, I didn't know how messed up I was and, and working through. So again, the motive here. And, and oh, I, I missed the part. So this, the, the phrase... If you can go back to the verse, the phrase that says, do not be harsh with them, that word there is uh, irritate. It's that uh, English word to be cross. You know, don't be cross with them. Don't have the resting jerk face. Stuff like that. The motive. The motive is you love your wife because it's an example to unbelievers, an example to your children and others around that what? of the marital union that Christ has with his church. So there's a, there's a great motive there. Not just to have a happy home or to have peace. That's the greater motive. All right, moving on. Colossians 3.20. Let's read that. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So what's the makeup for this? What's the makeup here? We'll talk about the chocolate in a minute. <laughs> you know, I see you all sitting there. I said, I got to get them chuckling, moves you around a little bit. Okay. So the makeup is, you know, the word children here is a general word. It's like offspring. Okay. And the idea here, uh, culturally, is you pretty much stop being a child when you go out to establish your own dependence and your own thing. As long as you're in the home, as long as your parents are responsible for you, as long as you're under their leadership and control, that's pretty much the definition of what, what's considered here to be, a, to be a children, to be a child. So you have one command, and what's that command? Obey. What's the manner? How do you do it? How do you do it? You do what you're told. You conform to advice. You take heed of. Do you know one of the number one ways that the Bible describes pagan cultures or pagan people? 
is by saying their children are disobedient. This is very important. Very important. Of course, the manner of this is also limited to what is right in God's sight. You cannot, you cannot listen to your parents if they're telling you to directly disobey the Lord. So, for example, I was a fifth grade believer. And my mom told me, this was before call waiting and you seeing who called you. But she knew somebody was going to call her about some bill. And she didn't want to pick up that phone. So she said, pick up that phone and tell them that I'm not here. So the phone rings. She knew it was coming. I pick it up and she told me, don't tell them I'm here. I don't want to talk to them. So then they say, is May Borges around? And I was like, uh, yeah. And she's getting mad. And then she says, what? She says, you, put, you know, she's motioning to me. And then I say, well, my mom told me to tell you that she can't come to the phone right now. So what did I get? She got the chancla. That is a parental mechanism. It helps to create good behavior. So, so she gave me that. But all joking aside, you cannot, um, you cannot obey your parents if they're asking you to do something that is against God's will. So what's the, what's the motive here? The motive is this is God's standard. Now the world doesn't give us this standard. It, uh, the world tells us something different. I think about this idea of teenagers. You know, I've spent a long time working with teenagers and, and doing work. And I'm, I found out that the word teenager was first used in the 20s. What came after the 20s? the 30s, the Great Depression. Okay, just checking. Okay, so anyway, so the phrase teenagers is, is brought out there and then it became normative in like the 40s and 50s. But basically in our culture, what teenage kind of means is you get a big amount of time where you basically get just to act crazy wild and people say you're figuring yourself out and stuff like that. That, that doesn't run in, uh, in union with what God is commanding about, about children. They are to obey. And I want to tell you that when your kids obey, it can be a model for the gospel. Uh, my kids are not perfect, but at their school, which is a public school, uh, families over and over, we get invited because our kids are obedient. They're the nice kid. Like, you know, Jaden hasn't beat anybody up yet. None of my kids have beat anybody up yet. You know, it's like, they're the nice kid. They're respectful. They're pleasant. They speak when they're spoken to by adults. They're obedient. And so they've been a testimony. We've had a chance to flat out share our family's testimony in multiple parties, just flat out, because people want to know, and you tell them. Do you know we purposely try to put our kids in sports leagues and activities uh, in whatever setting, uh, mostly with unbelievers, not yet believers, so that what? So that our kids can be a part of what we're, of what we're trying to do in terms of reaching people with the gospel. All right, let's move on. We've got a lot to go. All right, Colossians 3.21. Now we're talking to parents. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. What's the makeup of this? Well, when it says fathers, the word is pateris, and it's in the plural, which means not two dads, but father and mother. So it's talking about parents. And what's the manner? What do they have to do? It's very, very clear. It says not to provoke them. And this word means to not push their buttons purposefully. To not prod them needlessly. A.K.A. nagging. 
nagging. That word discouraged at the end is a really sad word. It, means to, it literally means to lose heart or to dishearten. That's super sad. So how can parents do this? I just got a short list. But I want to challenge parents not to be guilty of any of these. A big one is overprotection. All rules, no trust. All rules, no trust. Extreme helicopter parent. You can dishearten your kid. They don't know how to function. They're always careful on eggshells, not knowing where to step. It's too much. It's too much. And it can often seem hypocritical because you don't live that, that way. But you're expecting them to. Another thing is favoritism. Constantly comparing and putting them against each other. Guys, it's a family. You should, you're all on the same team. You know, I remember last year, Jaden won in the science fair. What did I say to the kids? Congratulations, we won the science, you know, we won the science fair. All of us, we're all on the same team. So if Jaden win, I win. If I lose something, the whole family lose something. You're one team. Don't put them, don't put them against each other. If you were only like Billy, Billy, you know, if you were only like Susan, uh, that can dishearten a child. Next, depreciate. Don't depreciate your children. I know some families, as soon as the guests come, the kids are like banished. Like you only seen them like a trace of them. Like they just like Bigfoot. Like they just ran past the camera, you know? And you're like, where are those kids? And even in front of other people, you hear them say, well, we would go on that trip too, except we have all these kids. What do you think that kid is hearing? That's disheartening. And even if, they ba if they're bad, really bad or naughty, you don't say that stuff. And be careful with the labeling in front of people. Don't say this is a bad kid or this kid is a thief. You can change that language to he stole something yesterday. But don't just label the broad stroke thief, liar. He lied to me yesterday when he said, be, just, be clear about that. Don't give them the label liar. He's a liar. Uh, that could dishearten them. I pretty much am listing all the things I've done wrong. So <laughs> this is confession. <laughs> uh, another thing is no, no affection. No affection. Uh, Gerald and I, when we became Christians at ICI at a young age, they used to have us listen to this Christian comedian. And he had a real funny thing with parents. And we still laugh about it all the time. He said, when your kid's in preschool, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, when you drop them off at school, they don't want you to leave. They kind of hold on to your legs. Stay, stay, stay. And you got all their hugs and kisses. Let me go. No, you let me go, right? Then third, fourth, fifth grade, you know, you get the pat. You get a kiss on the cheek, a slight hug. They might look around and see if their friends are, are looking before they do it, but you get that. Then come sixth, seventh, eighth grade high school, the parent comes in to pick them up. The kid literally looks at them and says, whose parent is that? <laughs> whose dad is that? Whose mom is that? You know, it's like that's, the, that's how the affection seems to go. But I want to tell you, as the kid gets older, you want to be more affectionate, even more affectionate. You know, Alyssa's 18, I grab her, I hug her, and when she try to push me away, I hug her a little bit more, and then I let her go because I don't want to get arrested and stuff like that, right? <laughs> but you have to be affectionate, okay? Another thing, to be discouraging. Don't be discouraging. I know sometimes kids do something amazing and there's like very little reward or very little acknowledgement. You want to acknowledge that stuff. You know, you want to acknowledge that stuff. And lastly, two things with the way you discipline. One is 
Some people, they just don't discipline their kids. They might think that's the job of the church or the school. And the kids come in almost like clay that's to be molded by the system. And no, your kids should be disciplined. There should be rules. There should be guidance. There should be uh, something more than just a friendship, buddy-buddy, parent to child. And then the other one is over-disciplining, being too harsh. You know, cursing a kid out over something minuscule. You see it all the time and it's shocking. You know, but when you're the parent, you can sometimes do that. What's the motive for listening to God here? The motive is we don't want our kids to lose heart. And God and Jesus' relationship is the ultimate example here too. God was well pleased with his son. God was well pleased with his son. Treated him well. Now let's read a chunk. Colossians 3, 22 to 25. I mean to 4-1, excuse me. It says, bond service, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people please, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants or slaves just as fairly, justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In the Colossian home, this would have been sort of normative. You, have, you, had, a, you had servants. Uh, we don't really have that in our households now. Some people would like to say, I think it's a loose application, so I wouldn't, I'm not going to say yes, but it's like a loose application of like employee, employer, employee. But what's the, what's the manner of this? Slaves are to obey in everything, even when the boss is not looking. That's what that eye service means. You know how some of you all work a little harder when you hear the footsteps? My vice principal has these high heels that make a noise down the hall so I can hear her really far away. All of a sudden, my lesson gets a lot better, you know, uh, you know, start using bigger words, right? So you have to make sure that you're obeying even when they're not around. And what's the motive? You have a single heart for the Lord. When you're serving... When the, when the slave was serving his master, he was working for the Lord. And, and Paul gives a positive and a negative. He says, the positive of this is God will repay you. God will reward you for your work. And then the negative is he'll punish you if you do not obey your master. And one thing we have to understand about this slave-master uh, relationship is the slave was not to presume that just because they were a believer that they could just disobey their master. You know, just because you're a believer doesn't mean uh, you have a higher stance than your, your boss at work, you know. Don't presume that because you're a believer you can kind of do what you want. And you notice that Paul actually had to write a letter regarding this situation, right? He told Onesimus he had to go back, he's talking to Philemon, how he has to deal with this relationship. But he asked him to obey and go back, even though he was a believer. And what does it say about the master? That that's the person in charge. And what's the manner of their actions? They have to treat them in a way, they have to treat their slaves in a way that they would want God to have treated them. Think about even the people that serve us, waiters, um, staff, at wherever place you're at, people in hotels. Just, I think there's a loose application here to even apply that to yourself. You know, How do you treat people? How can you be distinctly, distinctly kingdom in how you treat others?
So for our application, guys, I want to kind of give you a combo meal, okay? So there's a lot of different uh, parts moving here. But let me tell you something I figured out, and it's because the Lord has shown me and the Lord has shown other believers too, and you'll hear them say this. Um, it's all about Jesus. This book is Christ-centric. All this application stuff is still based and all about Jesus. Let me tell you something about the early church. You can research this yourself. It's fascinating. We've been studying the book of Acts in our home group, and it's all about how the early church grew. And I remember Peter preaches and, uh, you know, 3,000 come to the Lord. And people say, man, that growth was exponential. But you all know that it grows really, really fast. The early church grew really, really fast. You guys want to know what was probably the number one agent of that growth? It was the way the believing families acted in that society. They took in everybody. They took in homeless. They took in strangers. They took in children who were put off to the side. They took them all. And they loved them. And they taught them in the ways of the Lord. Guys, they brought in everybody. That family was focused on the Great Commission. The, fo the family was focused on the Great Commission. So my application to you today is not to focus on the family. Not to focus on your family. Which sounds weird with what we just heard, right? We heard about the wife, the husband, the children, the parents, right? You need to focus on God's mission. And what do I mean by that? If your family is moving toward doing things that are making disciples, things sort of work themselves out. Isn't that crazy? I remember I went to a marriage conference and the whole thing was about making disciples. And then they had a question time. Someone raised their hand. They're like, uh, practical, practical. Like, you didn't really give anything practical. And they were like, well, you missed the boat. The practical piece is, as you focus and develop your family to fulfill the great commission that God given all of us, it sort of plays itself out. It really does. You see, you don't, you don't really have too many weird little arguments and crying and complaining when disciples are being made. When your kids are seeing your dad uh, baptize someone, when they see your mom baptize three former students, there's really not too much to really complain about. You see God moving in your family, and it's exhilarating. It's amazing. See, Jesus obeyed his father. He's the example of this. So focus on him. He submitted. He sacrificed. He obeyed his father. He loved, God loved his son. Jesus served. And he also was the best master. So a believer, I'm going to close with this. A believer knows that our relationship to God and his mission is to be sought first. We call that vertical alignment. You go here first. First, second, third. Right? Then what comes next? When you see God first, then all these things, these horizontal relationships, will be added onto you. So even in application, Jesus is central. The relations, these relationships that God gives us to, they're for our sanctification and for our discipleship. The greatest tool that God has used to disciple me has been my marriage. You know, I did not know a lot of things about myself until I got married and had kids. So I thank God for that. One last thing. 
when you when you look at the culture that we're in it always tells you to focus on the family focus on this focus that and I want to tell you all that when you look at scripture the Bible tells us to put Jesus first others second and ourselves after that so there's a famous thing that says I am second right or I am third but I would say you know according to the scriptures it's kind of saying I am seven billion and something <laughs> you have to put Jesus first others second and yourself in that bottom position that's what you focus on you focus on that and that's where it's at let's pray God thank you for your word Thank you for how you teach us things, but don't ask us to just keep it in our Bible. Don't ask it to just keep it in our mind, but you ask us to live it out. You ask us to bring it to our homes, to our families. So God, I ask you that you would put it in our hearts and our minds to focus on you, to put your great commission as the supreme force, supreme thing that we are looking for, Lord. And we pray that you would bless our homes because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing this last song? Um, I, I'm encouraged by this last song as, as we hear, um, as we heard that, that, that uh, scripture unfolding. We, um, we do look at our relationships and realize it is, it's very difficult. And what I want us to, to walk away with is the sense of grace. Um, as we're about to sing from the inside out, I love the lyrics, a thousand times I failed, so your mercy remains. Should I stumble again, I'm caught in your grace. Um, and I love that the song is just reminding us that, that God's grace is there for us. It's not a license for us to sin, it's, but it's, it's giving us that, that, uh, that motivation to get back up and, and, and be obedient. You know? um, no matter how many times you fall, um, it's not, a, it's not a, a thing for us to give up. And that really the change has to come from the inside. It has to come from our relationship with, with the Lord, as Carlos said. That, that it begins with Jesus Christ first and as we focus on him as we, as we um, really deepen that relationship with him it begins to affect those around us and so, so we sing this uh, maybe we can sing this as a prayer as a response even to, to the fact that we know that, that we've, we've really failed so, so many times in our relationships um, in our families or with our friends or at work um, even being uh, faithful um, to doing that.